0: We're going to be in Hebrews 1 this morning, continuing our study through the book of Hebrews. We—it's been a somewhat of an interesting week, as uh, Darren has already mentioned um, the difficulties that his family has gone through uh, physically, and uh, there's been other th- others in the church that have also gone through some different physical difficulties. Many have ended up in the hospital and. Um, uh, it's been um, it's been a, diff- a different kind of week, and uh, it's it's good to know that we have a church family. And in all the people that I've talked to, that have been going through these experiences, these difficulties, it's 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 the church family, it's their walk with the Lord that always sustains them and keeps them going forward. And uh, it, it's always that it's it's our it's our spiritual life, it's our it's our relationship with Jesus Christ that uh, does keep us moving in a direction that is healthy and good and keeps us away as much as possible from from experiencing <laughs> discouragement and, and depression in in these difficult in these difficult times and seasons. And so I want to just encourage you um, at the beginning is just to be in prayer for each other. And be in prayer for those if you hear through the grapevine that somebody is sick or hurting that um, be in prayer for them. I know one of the things that's become very real, I think, through this journey is the importance of community groups, and I've just seen how community groups have have uh, come together um, around a certain individual or a certain situation or circumstance and just reached out to the Lord together as a, as a small group, and, and it's a group of a larger group. And so during these times, we see the value of our community groups here at the church, and Um, The importance of praying and working together to encourage and strengthen each other So I would encourage you to pray for each other and if you're not involved in a community group that you get involved in a community group and just um, Go to that go that extra level or that go a little bit deeper in regards to your relationship with the people here at grace It's palm sunday and um, we're not going to veer off of our our text of scripture here We're going to stay here, but but also make some applications to how it relates to um, the passage of Scripture that we're dealing with here. We know that Palm Sunday is the beginning of a week in which we celebrate several things about the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, We celebrate on Sunday his entering into Jerusalem. We celebrate on Friday, um, Good Friday, which is the time when he was... Crucified, or or at least when it's the most accepted time when he was crucified, there are several different positions on when he possibly was crucified, but the most accepted one is on Friday, and so that's why we celebrate Good Friday. Um, Between Monday or Sunday and Friday, we have the um, all of the trials that Jesus Christ went through, and him being condemned by the Romans and the Jewish leaders, and then ultimately we conclude next Sunday with the resurrection of Christ and the fact that he is is not in the grave still. He was not defeated. He was not overcome. But Jesus Christ was the victorious one. And Jesus Christ is the victorious one today. He is the one who has won, um, continues to win, and ultimately will win in the end. And uh, this is what gives us hope. I noticed a lot of the songs this morning were about the kingdom, and uh, this is what we look forward to. We're looking forward to the Lord's kingdom coming into this world. Um, a kingdom of righteousness, a kingdom of, uh, of good. Um, that's what we're looking forward to. Unfortunately, we, we live in a world that is fallen and broken. And, um, and therefore, we face a lot of these things because of that. We know that on Palm Sunday when Jesus Christ entered into Jerusalem they waved palm branches basically in celebration of Jesus Christ coming to be their king. As a matter of fact in John 13 or John 12 in verse 13 this is the verse that reads so they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him crying out hosanna blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord even the king of Israel. And so we see that they're really celebrating Jesus Christ as the king. We know because of the fact that we look back at this, these events that Jesus Christ did not come the first time to be the king, but he came the first time to be the lamb of God. He came to be the sacrificial lamb in order to establish or to begin the process of inaugurating his kingdom. Without his coming as the Lamb of God, there is no possibility for a kingdom. And so Jesus Christ comes the first time to make a payment for men's sins in order to fulfill the promises that would take place at the end of time with, uh, in Revelation with the actual coming of the kingdom. In our passage of scripture that we read this morning that we're going to just walk through, we have this promise uh, we have the, the, really, for many, um, for, in many ways, it's a, it's a reminder of a promise of Jesus Christ's kingdom coming. And we noted last week that from verse 4 down to verse number 14, almost entirely, it is a quote from the Old Testament um, not each, each not a not a continual quote, but you could actually go to several different passages of scripture in the Old Testament, and you would find the exact quotes from these eleven verses. And the reason for that is to make the connection to the promises of the kingdom of the Lord. To make that connection, and what's interesting, and we'll walk through it here in a moment, is that you actually will see the fulfillment of these promises in the Book of Revelation. They they are reiterated in Hebrews which is kind of the midpoint and then they are fulfilled in the book of Revelation. And we'll walk through that just for a moment. I want to I want to kind of give you a picture of it. So take your Bibles and go with me to the book of Psalms chapter number 2. And uh, we'll we'll begin reading in verse number 6. He says, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. In case that doesn't ring a bell, we go back to our passage of scripture. In verse number 5, the Bible says... Really quoting from Psalm 2, he says, For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And then if you'll go with me to the book of Revelation, chapter 21. Actually, three times in the book of Revelation, this statement is reiterated. In chapter 2 and verse 27, when he's talking to the churches, he reiterates this a thought in chapter 19 he re- reiterates this thought again and then in chapter number 21 and uh, verse number 7 to the one who conquers will um, to the one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son and you'll notice in verse number 7 he talks about to the one who conquers It doesn't talk about to the many who conquer, but it talks about to the one who conquers. And it's a direct quote from Psalm 2 and also Hebrews chapter number 1, referring to the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the one who is victorious, and he is the fulfillment of this promised king that goes all the way back into the Old Testament when God made these promises to the Hebrew people. And then he's going to fulfill them in the the end times with, with an actual earthly kingdom and then ultimately fulfill them with a heavenly kingdom. So we go back to our text, and I'm I'm not going to, because of time, I'm not going to unpack or go back to the Old Testament or the New Testament for each one of these, but I do want to look at it for just a moment. He says, you are my son, today I have begotten you. We saw the connection in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Verse number, um, at the end of that verse, he says, or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son, you go back to Second Samuel chapter seven and verse 14, it's a, it's, a, it's a quote from that passage of Scripture, which is a promise that David's throne would continue forever. And we know that David's throne continues forever through Jesus Christ, and it is, the, it is fulfilled in Revelation 19,20 and 21, where you have the, the, the earthly kingdom, and also where you have the eternal kingdom, the heavenly kingdom. Deuteronomy 32-43 is the quote from verse number 6. And he says, and again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. In Deuteronomy 32-43, it's an exact quote from that passage of Scripture. It's dealing with the kingdom again. It's a promise. And if we look at the book of Revelation, there is no passage of Scripture in the Bible that is more replete with angels worshiping God than the book of Revelation. At at, at every passing point, you see angels surrounding the throne, bowing down and worshiping Jesus Christ as the king. It is the fulfillment of this promise in the Old Testament, of this reminder in Hebrews, and then the fulfillment is in the book of Revelation. In verse number 7, he says, "...of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire." This comes from Psalm 104 and verse 4, and again, the book of Revelation is full of content about God's angels doing his work, about God's angels doing his bidding, about God's angels blowing trumpets and having seals in their hands, about God's angels doing these things. Of the 181 times that the word angel is used in the New Testament, 72 of them are found in the book of Revelation. So when he says that he makes his angels wins, in other words, he makes his angels communicators. He finds that fulfillment in the book of Revelation when he is uh, preparing to establish his kingdom on the earth. He says... Um, He makes his ministers a flame of fire. Of the 74 times that this term fire is used in the New Testament, 25 of them are found in the book of Revelation. And most of them, in, in, in most cases, as they are spoken of, in some way they are ministering something. They are ministering God's judgment. They are ministering God's wrath. They are ministering God's sanctification. In some way they are ministering to the world. In preparation for the kingdom of the Lord to be established and to be set up. Turn with me back to Psalm 45. We're going to look at these last three. chapter 45, beginning in verse number seven, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is the scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. We have that, again, that direct quote. If you go back with me a few verses in verse number three, you can kind of get this picture again of of revelation being the fulfillment of, this, of, this, of these truths. In verse number three, he says, Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty, in your majesty ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach your awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The people fall under you. And again, we find the fulfillment of this truth or of this promise in Psalms to be fulfilled in the book of of Revelation as God um, basically humbles the world, he brings the world to its knees. And then in Psalm 102, if you want to turn there as well. He says in verse 25, Of of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you are the same, and your years have no end. The children of your servants shall dwell secure. Amen? Their offspring shall be established before you. This is a direct quote again from these Verses here, um, verses 11 and 10, 11 and 12, go back in verse number uh, 23. He has broken my strength in mid-course. He has shortened my days. Oh, my God, I say, take me not away in the midst of my days, Um, you whose years endure throughout all generations. Chapter 110 of Psalms, we have this last quote here. Verse number one, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Obviously, again, we have the kingdom of the Lord being established or spoken of or prophesied about here. Being reminded of in the book of Hebrews and then being fulfilled as the Lord Jesus Christ reigns on the throne of David in the book of Revelation um, for a thousand years here on the earth and then forever in eternity in the new heaven and the new earth. Skip down with me to verse number five. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the, over the wide earth. This is the Lord's wrath. We actually would see in each one of these situations, in each one of these scenarios, uh, each one of these quotes from the Old Testament, if we were to read the context of each one intermixed or surrounding this promise of this kingdom to come or this uh, prophecy of the, of the um, kingdom of the Lord, this righteous reign, there is always associated with it some type of judgment, some type of a just act, some type of a suffering we can't even miss this as we look at the book of Revelation and we see at the very end of Revelation, there's, there's this kingdom that is established in chapter number 20, this 1,000-year uh, reign the Lord refers to, and then 21, the new heaven and the new earth. We, we see those things and we look forward to those things and we anticipate those things, but we can't miss that there are 19 or uh, 18 other chapters in the book of Revelation that deal with suffering. They deal with heartache and they deal with pain and they deal with difficulty. There's a a reason for that. This this background is important to, to lay out because sometimes it's easy to get excited about and to have the expectation of this coming kingdom but to forget about the nature of this kingdom. It's easy to overlook the 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 nature the 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 idea of God's kingdom and just to anticipate it coming and not anticipate what it looks like we have the we are in a world today where many people are anticipating certain things they anticipate blessing they they anticipate winning they anticipate all of these things but they often overlook what that looks like in the end and what it takes to get there for that victory to take place. We're reminded of this in this passage of Scripture here in Hebrews. We're reminded of several things. But first of all, we're reminded of the fact, and again, this goes back to being able to understand maybe some of the things that we go through in this life. Um the question that people ask is why is there evil in the world? Why is there suffering? Why is there difficulty? Why is there heartache and hardship? And we understand that. We, we are going through that as a body. We have people in our church that are going through difficulties. And we ask the question oftentimes, Lord, why are we going through these difficulties? Why do we have to face these hardships? And we look forward to that day when the kingdom of the Lord comes and all things will be perfect. And the Bible says all tears will be wiped away from our eyes. And There'll be, there'll be no more sorrow or no more suffering. But for now, there is sorrow and there is suffering. When we think about the kingdom of the Lord, the one thing that we often overlook is the fact that the kingdom of the Lord is good and that no one and no place is suitable for the Lord's kingdom. No one is suitable, and no place is suitable for the Lord's kingdom. This is what we're reminded of all throughout Scripture. The world and its inhabitants are a a far cry from being suitable for the king and for his kingdom. Paul Washer once said it this way, "The The most terrifying truth of Scripture is that God is good. You see, God's goodness is man's greatest problem because man is not good. Because God is good, he must punish evil, and all natural men are evil. In order for man to be forgiven, God's justice must be satisfied. A price has to be paid that only God could recompense. He alone is able, and by him alone is this possible. So we see in each one of these passages of Scripture, we see this promise of the kingdom. We see this promise of perfection. We see this promise of blessing, this promise of tears being wiped away and, and, and everything being good. We see this promise surrounded by suffering, surrounded by difficulty, surrounded by heartache. And there's a reason for that. And I want to just unpack um, for the next few minutes that we have, I want to unpack the remain the remain. remainder of our text here, just to walk through it with you and to see why it is that we do face suffering and difficulty in the world. And what is God accomplishing? The first thing that we see is found in verse 8 and 9. We see, well, there's a few things. Let me read it to you. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever, The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness, and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. We see in this few verses, we see the kingdom of the Lord is promised. Before we go further, I want you to to make note that there are three ways in which the kingdom expresses itself. First of all, the Bible tells us that the kingdom is inside of us. When a person becomes a believer, the Lord Jesus Christ comes to live in their heart. The Holy Spirit comes to live in their heart and he is on the throne of their heart. And as he sits on the throne of their heart, he is king of their life. He is king of their heart. This is the first way in which the kingdom of the Lord is expressed. And it's also expressed uh, through the individual in the local body of believers, in the church. We are expre- an expression a faulty expression, if you will, of the kingdom of the Lord. As he reigns in our heart and reigns through us, we are an expression of his kingdom. Although a faulty expression. Luke 17, 21, the Bible says, Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in you. In other words, the kingdom of God is inside of us in the person and in the presence of the Holy Spirit. And that's the first way in which we see the kingdom expressed. The second way that the kingdom is expressed is in this thousand year reign that's mentioned to us in Revelation chapter number 20, in which the Lord will establish a earthly kingdom and he will sit on literally on the throne of David and fulfill the promises that he made to the Jewish people in a literal way. He tells us in Revelation chapter number 5 that we will rule with Jesus on the earth. We will rule with him on the earth. And this this kingdom that the Lord is going to set up is going to be a kingdom where Christ reigns, righteousness reigns on the earth for 1,000 years. At the end of that time, Satan will be released for a season. Um, He will gather up all the armies of the earth that are opposed to the Lord, and he will... Um, have war with him in heaven and he will be finally and ultimately defeated and at that point in time there will be the destruction of the old earth and the old heaven and there will be the a, a new heaven and a new earth and that new heaven and new earth is the final expression of Jesus Christ's reign and that will be when when all of his enemies have been defeated and he will reign eternally in this new heaven and this new earth. And it's a wonderful um, promise to look at in his word that we don't have a lot of information to go further on. People often ask me, what's going to be in that new heaven and a new earth? And I'm like, that's for God to decide. He doesn't tell us a lot about that in his word. What we know is in the end, he's going to destroy all of this. And he's he's going to create a new heaven and a new earth. And in that, he will reign and rule and we, have, we, we get to look forward to that. We get to look forward to that perfect kingdom. Again, we get a, a lesser expression of it today in our hearts. We get a greater expression of it when he comes back at the second coming and he establishes his kingdom for a season. And we get the full expression of the kingdom of the Lord when he destroys the old heaven and the old earth and creates a new one. He, he, he does away with the old and, and starts again with, with new. So that's the presentation, or that's the promise. Jesus' kingdom is promised. Number two is that Jesus' kingdom is perfect. We'll notice that in this verse of Scripture, in verses uh, 8 and 9, it talks about that your throne, O God, is forever and ever, meaning that it is eternal. It is, it is never going to, he's, he's never going to stop ruling or reigning. He's, he's always going to sit on the throne of the hearts of those who believe in the millennial kingdom, and also eternally, he will be on the throne of the Lord forever. And we are given this promise back in the book of Isaiah, if you want to turn there with me. One of the most familiar passages in Isaiah for the Lord's um, virgin birth in chapter number nine. The Bible says in verse number six, for unto us a child is born and a son is given and the government will be upon his shoulders and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. This, uh, this reign of Christ is, an e- is a reign that will, will never end. It will continue on forever into eternity. When we look forward to this, it's, a, it's an eternal reign. He not only talks about it being an eternal reign, which, which is, is implied in its perfection, but it's also a perfect reign. It's a perfect kingdom. It's a kingdom that is marked by righteousness, The word here in uh, verse number eight, the his scepter of uprightness is the scepter of his kingdom, is the idea of fairness, the impartiality. Jesus Christ's kingdom will be marked by impartiality. It will be marked by unrighteousness. We know that there's no favoritism with God, that God will not show partiality to anyone. It's not within his character to do so. That God will judge every man with the same form of judgment, the same basis of judgment. There is no partiality with God. This is a warning that we that we experience in, in, in this passage of Scripture. There is, no, there is no partiality with God. He is an impartial judge. He is a perfectly righteous and just judge. To, to think about that we are going to somehow walk through life and live for self and sinfully, to to know the truth and to walk away from Christ and to one day be received by God the Father is foolishness. He tells us that in Hebrews chapter number 10 where he says, those who have come to know the truth but then sin willfully after they've come to know the truth, there remains no sacrifice for their sins. This is a serious warning in this passage of Scripture. The kingdom of the Lord is a perfect kingdom, it is a righteous kingdom, and the one who will judge those who enter that kingdom is a, is, a, is, a, is a judge that is fair and impartial. Jesus Christ is a righteous judge. John chapter number 5 says that all, all judgment has been given into his hands. The Father judges no one but all Judgment has been given into the hands of the Son. He is a, a fair and righteous judge. He goes on to say, the kingdom is perfect. This is why we're going to see in the next few verses why God goes through what he goes through to get that kingdom to where it needs to be. He he goes through great efforts to work out his kingdom, to establish his kingdom the difficulty of getting us to where we need to be. He says in the, at the end of, uh, in verse number nine, you have love, righteousness and hated wickedness. You'll notice that, that his kingdom or, or his judgment or his rule is based upon his own character, number one, and it's not based upon the externals of an individual, it's based upon the internals. Jesus Christ, number one, is the standard by which all men will be judged, Jesus Christ is the standard by which all men will be judged. And he's completely impartial in his judgment. He's completely fair in his judgment. Every man will be judged by the standard of Jesus Christ. And he's completely impartial in his judgment. And he won't just judge us based upon what we have done, but he will judge us based upon what's in our hearts to do. The reason why he uses these terms in this text, he loves righteousness and he hates wickedness, is to show us that it's not just actions that make us acceptable before God, it is our attitude that makes us acceptable before our God. Jesus is the perfect example, he's the perfect display of righteousness. This is why he can have a kingdom of righteousness. His judgment is built around our attitudes more than our actions. He goes on even to say that he has been anointed with the oil of gladness. And we find this same call in in the book of of John and in other passages of Scripture, the the importance of of the Christian life being full of joy. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. The gladness of Christ, it's, it's, it's a representation of the outflowing of his heart. He tells us in chapter 12 of this book, he says, that he endured for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. His judgment is built around our, our heart attitudes. Jeremiah 17:10, I the Lord search the heart and test the mind, to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. And then Psalm 7 and verse 9: Oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end, and may you establish the righteous, you who test the minds and hearts, O righteous. God his judgment is built around the attitude of our hearts David says in Psalm 139 search me and know my heart and see if there's any wicked way within me and cleanse me his judgment is built around our attitudes more than our actions his judgment or Jesus is the judge and he is the standard by which all will be judged Jesus Christ is the judge, and he is the standard by which all will be judged. And in his judgment, there will not be any partiality. Now watch what he does. He goes on, number two. So again, first of all, we see Jesus Christ's kingdom is perfect. The reason why we face all of the things that we face in this life is because Jesus Christ's kingdom is perfect. He can't allow anything into his kingdom that's not perfect. So watch what he says Number two is or number three is Jesus Christ's kingdom is purified. He says, "And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. In, in other words, Jesus Christ is the creator of all things. He is the one who has created the earth, He is the one who has created heaven. The pinnacle of his creation is uh, just happens to be man. On, on day six, he created man and he created man to, Ultimately and to fully worship him. Yes, you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. If you just take, uh, you t- take brackets or whatever you want to put around that, and what he's describing is everything. He's describing everything that has been created, everything from the things in the, in the heavens to the things on the earth. He's describing everything. He's describing us. Everything that fits into one of those two categories, he's created them or they are the work of his hands is is meant by this verse of scripture. And what's the next three words say in verse number 11? It says, they will perish. All of the things that God has created, all of those things, whether it be the, the, the heavens with all of the, The perfect beauty of heaven and all of those things is going to perish. All of the things that God created on the earth is going to to perish. The earth itself is going to perish. We, as humanity, are going to perish. The Lord is going to destroy the world, the Bible teaches, with a fervent heat. He's going to destroy everything that is wicked and unholy. And the reason for that is, as he establishes his kingdom, there will be no wickedness in his kingdom. He cannot allow wickedness into his kingdom. If he allowed wickedness into his kingdom, it would no longer be a perfect kingdom. He cannot allow wickedness into his kingdom. So so picture with me for a moment, Jesus Christ, thousands of years ago, creates all of this extraordinary world. By the word of his mouth, in six days, and he rests on the seventh day, he's... Fully satisfied, and he says it will all be good. And Adam and Eve f- fall into sin, and they begin this process of decline that will ultimately end up in the a complete annihilation of the entire universe in order that God might start over again, because in God's kingdom there must be perfection. There cannot be anything that is imperfect in, in God's kingdom. In other words, everything that is imperfect down to the very atom of, of creation, everything that is imperfect must be destroyed before God's kingdom can be fully expressed. Everything. Nothing will remain. And then you will have the full expression of God's kingdom and that kingdom will be a kingdom of complete and perfect righteousness promised to the people in the Old Testament fulfilled for us in Revelation chapter 21 with a new heaven and a new earth. Nothing can be allowed that is wicked in God's kingdom. Wickedness cannot be allowed nor can the wicked be allowed. Matthew 5 and verse 48, you therefore must be perfect. You therefore, and, and you, you know the story of Matthew 5, it's all about the kingdom. What's the kingdom look like? Those who are merciful and those who are, um, uh, uh, the, you, I can't think of all of it. the beatitudes are mentioned there. That's the description of the kingdom. And then he says in conclusion, in, uh, uh, the, the end of that chapter, that, You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is is also perfect. The only way that we're going to enter into his kingdom is by being perfect. That's the only possibility for anything or anyone to enter into the kingdom of Christ. The Bible says in Romans 1 and verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. God is going to destroy everything and everyone who is unrighteous and that is wicked in order to usher in a perfect kingdom. The things that we're looking forward to in the future are built around the fact that it is perfection that is meant to be there. Somebody once asked the question why does God allow all of the wickedness and evil in the world that's here? And this preacher responded to the question of, well, what level would you like God to remove it all because it would include you? And it's true. It's true. If God were to remove evil from the world, it would mean the annihilation of everyone. It would mean the destruction of everything. This is why we read in uh, 1 Peter 3:9 that God is not slack concerning his promises that some men count slackness But God is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's the essence of that verse. The only way that God's going to usher in perfection is by total annihilation. But right now, we're in the season of grace in which we can experience salvation and deliverance from our own sinfulness. How? By being in Christ Jesus. You see, Christ Jesus is the perfect one. And our lives are hidden in him. It's almost like a picture of Jesus Christ wearing this enormous robe. And in that robe are all believers. And based upon his perfection, we are accepted in the kingdom of the Lord. And this is not just a theory. It is a reality. It's not just a spiritual truth. It is a physical truth. We are not just, we are not just going to be righteous Spiritually, but the Bible says we were going to be given a new body. We're going to be righteous physically. We're going to be perfectly in the image of Christ. Listen, this is what we have to look forward to. But folks, we're going through a season where the Lord is dealing with the unrighteousness of the world. This is the reason for the suffering and the difficulty and the heartache. If we realized how far we were away from the goal, we would understand why there's so much heartache that goes on in our lives. He says in verse 11, they will perish. The word here literally means final and complete destruction. Second Peter 3 deals with it as a total annihilation. To destroy, to abolish, to do away with, to ruin, to kill. There's no second chances when we leave this life. The word is used in Luke 13, verse 3 and 5, where it says, Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. In John 10 and 28, I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Matthew 10 28, and do not fear those who will kill the body, but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who can destroy both the body and the soul in hell. He will destroy everything that is unrighteous and wicked. You'll notice as well in verse number 11, the justification of this destruction. The idea of this, of this simple phrase is that they will perish based upon their own doing. And the concept is, is that they will bring destruction upon themselves. They will bring God's judgment upon themselves. They live in sin willfully and love sin, and they bring God's wrath upon themselves. He is fully justified in his destruction of the world because it brings this destruction on itself. Romans 2 and verse 5, the Bible says, but because, of your, because you are hard and impenitent hearts, you are storing up wrath for yourself. You are bringing this wrath upon yourself for the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. And again, we read in Romans 1 and verse 18 that the wrath of God will be revealed from heaven against some unrighteousness and ungodliness of men or against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. It's against all. This is a serious thing that's taking place in our lives, in our world. He goes on to say, they will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. In other words, the idea, of, again, is like a robe that he wears. He, it, it's, it's, it's full of things that are not good. He takes it off. He throws it away. He throws it aside. He casts it, perhaps, into the fire to be destroyed. And then the Bible uses the term that they will be replaced, or they will be changed. They will be changed. They'll be, they'll be replaced. I think there could be a picture uh, made to heat to Romans 11 where the Bible talks about replacing the Jewish people with the Gentile people for, for a season. They will be changed. They will be altered. So we think about this again, a few practical thoughts. Remember this the kingdom is it, that is to come that god is going to destroy all evil and all wickedness from this world in order to establish his kingdom right that's the final picture but what's the what's the what's the temporary picture today the picture is is that god is the king of your god is the king of your heart right so is it possible that god is destroying some of those things in your life right now Is it possible that God is sanctifying you right now? That God is removing those imperfections? And the way that he removes those imperfections as we see in the book of Revelation and all these other passages is through what? It's through suffering. It's through difficulty. He is the king and so he he must get all wickedness and all evil out of the way. And he does that through sanctification. He ultimately does that through getting us out of the way. He says, they will perish, total destruction and annihilation. We know that the ultimate end of man for a believer is is not, let me say it this way. The ultimate victory for a man as a believer is when he passes from this old body into his new body. That's the ultimate victory that he is going to experience. That's when the old body will be annihilated The idea of change, it uses that uh, that same terminology in 1 Corinthians 15. I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. His kingdom is going to be purified. In the end, it will be perfect. There will be nothing on the earth, nothing in heaven that is imperfect. For today, he is purifying us, and he is purifying for his millennial kingdom. Number four, Jesus Christ's kingdom is prepared. The Bible says in verse 13, and to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? This is simply a reference to the Lord bringing things to its knees, bringing things to reverence to him as king. Again, this is something that will will take full picture in his eternal kingdom where he reigns and all things will bow their knee to him as king. But today, not all things bow their knee to Jesus Christ as king. As a matter of fact, the reality of it is not all things in your life bow yourself to Jesus Christ as king. Not all things in my life bow themselves to Jesus Christ as king. This is the work that he's doing right now in our lives. This is the sanctification process that he's doing He's preparing us to be what he's making us to be. He's purifying us. He's doing it through repentance and faith. This is not a pleasant process. Matter of fact, it's most unpleasant. He tells us in several places not to consider the trials of this life in a surprising way. Don't look at them as being a surprise because of what the Lord is doing with them. And then in Hebrews 12, he talks about the the uh, chasing of the lord it's producing fruits of righteousness it's bringing us to our knees but it's also bringing things in our lives in our life to their knees and ultimately in the end philippians 2 says that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that jesus christ is lord to the glory of god the father in the end all things will bow their knee to jesus christ as king we are in the process of having all things that do not bow their knee to Jesus Christ either being submitted, right? If you ever watch wrestling, right? Or not, not WWF, but the kind where it's actually real. Then when it gets to a point where you're really in the, you know, you're in the headlock and you can't breathe, you do what? You tap out. That's what we need to do in our lives. Seriously. We need to learn to tap out. Like Jacob in Genesis 32 where he's wrestling with the Lord all night. Finally, he taps out. There's things in our life that we need to surrender to God. We need to bow the knee to him in his way and his will and his work. We need to surrender that area to the Lord. His he is preparing for his kingdom to come in which and at which time all things will bow their knee to him this is fulfilled in revelation 21 revelation 22 the last thought this morning is simply this verse number 14 and they that are and are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for those for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation the last thing is Jesus Christ's kingdom is personal. You'll notice this. In the midst of all of this, in the midst of all of these trials and tribulations and heartache, in the midst of the Lord purifying His kingdom, in the in the midst of the Lord submitting us. To his will and to his work in the midst of the Lord humbling us so that we face him with humility and we face other people with humility in the midst of all of this. Here's what he says at the very end. For those of you who are, in, who are to inherit eternal life, these will have help on the journey. These have somebody that's going to come along beside of them. In the same way when Jesus Christ was in the Garden of Eden, the Garden of Gethsemane, and the angels came and they ministered to him in the midst of his darkest hour. When he, was with, when he was being tempted by the devil in the wilderness, the angels came and they ministered to him in his darkest hour. For those of us who are true followers of Jesus Christ, it does not mean that we're not going to go through difficulty or hardship. Amen it does mean that you're not going to go through difficulty or hardship alone. You have somebody there with you. For those who are to, yes, the Lord is going to purify you. Yes, the Lord is going to cleanse you of all of that pride and self-righteousness and self-sufficiency. The Lord is going to purify you so that you will be the best expression of his kingdom that's possible. He is going to do that. And yes, one day he's going to express his kingdom in a universal way, but right now it's you. And he's gonna purify you to be the best possible expression of that kingdom that you can be. And he's gonna prepare you, he's gonna submit you, he's gonna humble you so that you will bow the knee to him in every facet of your life. Bowing your knee to Jesus is not the idea that says, Lord, you can have all of these areas of my life, but not this one, that is causing him to submit his knee to you. Bowing the knee to Jesus is when you kneel before him and you say, Lord, you have it all. It is all yours. Do with me as you see fit. But listen to me, folks, to what the Lord wants to do with you and what the Lord wants to accomplish in you and what the Lord wants to accomplish through you. Every single one of us are a far cry from it. The hardest thing to The reason we have a hard time facing difficulties is because we don't realize that God is doing a hard work in us. He's doing a difficult work in us to make us into something that we can never imagine being. I meet people on a regular basis who have been through such extraordinary difficulty and the level of humility that they have and the level of brokenness and the the level of kindness and the the level of, 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 of servanthood is just amazing. Why? Because they've been through it. They've been through it. God has humbled them and made them into a person that is a great expression of his kingdom. And he's doing that with each one of us. And he's doing a hard work. It's it's making us perfect. It's an impossible thing. Only God can make this person perfect. And it's difficult. And it's painful. But he's purifying me. He's preparing me. And he's personally walking with me through the journey. He has given me a helper in the power of the Holy Spirit, amen? Amen. And the Holy Spirit lives inside of me. And as I walk through these journeys of life and as I face these difficulties in life, I can know this, that I'm not alone. You know something, folks? This verse of scripture implies that every lost person is alone. They are alone. But those who are to inherit eternal life those who are to have salvation, those who believe and they embrace what Jesus Christ has done, they will never go through a difficulty in life without the Lord being with them. It's such an encouragement. It's such an encouragement. Let me say this to you in closing. We need to know that we can expect the kingdom of the Lord to come. And I want you to know this. This is a truly a warning text. The next text in chapter number two and verse one, the Lord set it up perfectly for next Sunday. It is a hold on to the gospel text. This is seriously a warning text that life is not gonna be easy. And you're gonna be tempted to fall away from grace. Not lose your salvation, but you're gonna be tempted to fall away from grace and life. This is a warning text that God is going to purify And he's going to prepare and he's going to walk with us through this journey to make it to his goal. Which is that we be perfectly in the image of Christ. I think of the Old Testament when, Jesus, when Abraham got the promise that God was gonna make of him a great nation and he began this journey. It was definitely not a perfect journey and it was definitely not a painless journey, but praise the Lord that Abraham made it to the promised land. And folks, listen to me. We have a promise in the book, in, in, in God's word that is fulfilled in Revelation that all of those who have trusted in Jesus Christ and have embraced them as their Lord and Savior will make it to the promised land, but it doesn't promise us that the journey will be easy but it does promise us that the journey will be accomplished and that we'll not be alone in the journey. Remember, the kingdom of the Lord is coming and it is partially expressed through you. God is going to judge impartially. He's not going to be unfair. Every man will be be judged in the same way. Those who have rejected Jesus Christ will be condemned, and those who have embraced Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior will be embraced on His righteousness, not their own. Remember that Jesus Christ's kingdom is marked by righteousness, perfection, not necessarily of our actions as much as our motive and our intent. All that is imperfect will be rejected by God and His kingdom those who are imperfect and that which is imperfect will be cast aside and ultimately destroyed and God will purify a kingdom for himself God will purify a people for himself and that is what the Lord is doing today and you can thank the Lord if you're sitting here this morning and you have and you're on that journey you can thank the Lord that you're a part of that journey because that journey in and of itself is the grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It is a wonderful privilege to be on the journey that we're on and know that we're not alone and know that we'll make it to the end. I hope that uh, this passage of Scripture encourages your heart. I really, this morning, wanted to lay a foundation for next week when we talk about the gospel in Easter. We want this, this has to be there. We have to understand the severity and the significance of God's destructive judgment. We have to understand that so that we will embrace and cling to the gospel of Jesus Christ and not any other way to God except through the gospel. So I pray that if you're if it's possible that you'll come back next week and you'll hear the good news that comes through Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you so much for this your word for the grace that we experience in it and Lord God the strength and the help that we have for each day of our lives as we walk um, with you as we're conformed into the image of your son as we're sanctified we have this great hope that one day you will be complete and the world will be new and we will be new and uh, you will be glorified in a way that is appropriate we pray your blessing upon the remainder of this day Lord God that um uh, would think about these things as we go from this place in Jesus Christ.